Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Om Asatoma Sadagamaya Tamaso Maham Jyoti Gamaya Brityur Mam Amritam Gamaya Avir Ahavir Maedhi Rudra Yate Dakshinam Mukaham Te Namaham Pahinityam Om, lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness unto light. Lead us from death to immortality and reach us through and through ourselves and evermore protect us from ignorance by thy sweet, compassionate face. So my subject this morning is the theory of reincarnation. According to this ancient doctrine of reincarnation, death is not the end of life. After the death of the gross, physical, flesh and blood body, the soul in the sukshma sharira, in the subtle body, journeys on to heaven or to hell and eventually is reborn again on this earth or in some other appropriate world. There is life after death. And there's also life before death. Life before life. We, we've lived before. And according to this doctrinally, we have lived many times before in previous ages, in different countries, and in different kinds of bodies. This doctrine is based on the great philosophical truth that man is a soul, that man is a spiritual being, and can exist independently of the gross physical body. Now, there are two views that are expressed by religions of the world. One is that man has a body and has a soul, and the other is that man is a soul and has a body. Now, the first of these views is maintained by what we know as the Semitic religions, the Jewish, the Christian, Islam, they maintain that man is a body and has a soul. And that the soul is kind of like a ghost that inhabits this body. And when the body dies, a person is said to give up the ghost. And that ghost, where it goes, no one knows. Maybe he, according to the Egyptian Ancient Egyptians, the ghost wanders around, lost, 
for a certain period of time, longing and hoping for the future resurrection of the body. And that's why the followers of the Semitic religions bury their dead so that they can preserve the body eventually or the materials of the body for a future resurrection. We can contrast this view with the view which is held by the Aryan religions of the world, that is the Greek and the Hindu, who maintain that man is a soul and has a body. And that when a man dies, he said to give up the body. And in all Aryan religions, they practice cremation. That means the burning of the physical body in order to liberate the soul and enable the soul freely to break its attachments once and for all, enable it to travel on in its journey to future worlds. So the teaching of the Vedanta philosophy is that man is a soul and has a body. Actually, according to the yoga psychologists, we have three bodies, the gross, the subtle, and the causal. And the gross body has often been compared to a suit of clothes. And sometimes when we're finished with an old suit of clothes, they're ready to be cast off, and we go and buy another suit of clothes, which is new. Vasangsi, Jirnani, Atavi, Haya, Navani, Grihnati, Naroparani, Tata, Sharirani, Vihaya, Jirnani, Yanani, Sanyati, Navani, Dehi. Sometimes I quote Sanskrit verses, show you that this is not a New Age religion. The subject that we discussed this morning was discussed thousands of years ago. It has been discussed by philosophers, a quotation there from the, the Bhagavad Gita, where Sri Krishna, speaking of this very subject, compares the, the body to a suit of clothes, and that just as at night, we take off one suit of clothes and sleep. And when we wake up, we put on another suit, which is new. Similarly, it is that when we die, we're reborn in another new body. This doctrine of reincarnation is closely reliant with another doctrine fundamental to the teaching of the wisdom of the East, and that is the great law of karma. According to the law of karma, whenever you do some self-conscious volitional action, it leaves an impression in the mind. Actually, the two act two consequences of your karmic action, that is your self-conscious volitional action, one of them is immediate and subjective. It goes down, it leaves an impression in your mind, it alters and changes your personality and your character. The second effect is more external and more indirect, that is, it goes out and circles around in the world, and eventually will return to you to influence your behavior. Return like a boomerang, and you will deal with the consequences in the future. 
And according to this law of karma, explains to us why we are what we are and why we act the way we do when we find ourselves in a situation which is similar to the one that we were in before, where we have impressions and some scars, those some scars will naturally assert themselves, float again to the surface, and prompt us, prompt a, a, a desire, will arise in the mind to repeat. That's a repetition compulsion. We'll begin to repeat the same action we did before. And that's our whole life. It's caught in thousands of these vicious circles of karma driven by our own past actions. The law of karma is apropos to our discussion this morning because it's all about, well, often it is translated as karma, translated as action or as work. Actually, it means, it means work or play. But it explains to us why we work. I mean, why do you, why do you get up in the morning? You get up in the morning because... You have work to do. You have things that need to be done. And uh, you can't just sleep throughout the day because there is work to be done. Similarly, it is that when we die, we go into the grave. And why can't we just continue to sleep on and on for all eternity? Because we have work to do. We have karma to work out. And every day when we go to sleep, uh, we sleep through the night, and we wake up and go to work. And one day it will happen that we will wake up and find that we're dead. <laughs> the body's not functioning anymore. And that's a big problem. What are we going to do? We've got to get to work. You remember that old famous story by Franz Kafka, The Metamorphosis? He wakes up one morning and he has become a huge human-sized insect. And his, his first thought, as he looks down at his insect body, his first thought is, oh my God, I've got to go to work this morning. I can't, I can't go like this. So... Um, just like a man who gets up in the morning, goes down, gets in his car. You find the car, your engine's frozen, maybe your transmission is jammed. You realize the mechanic is not going to be able to fix this car anymore. You've got to get rid of the car. You need to find another car which is new. So that's how it works. That's why this doctrine of karma, the law of karma, provides us with an explanation. Explains the psychodynamics of why we're born again, why we have to be born again, and why this doctrine makes sense. That's kind of my purpose this morning, is to convince you that this is a, a theory, a doctrine of Indian philosophy that stands to reason. And although we have no final scientific proof of the, of the truth of this doctrine, Nevertheless, it's a theory that makes a lot of sense. And it deserves to be integrated into our philosophy of life. This doctrine of reincarnation is interesting for several reasons. 
For one thing, it is a doctrine of considerable antiquity, very ancient in its form. This is not a New Age teaching. For thousands of years, a billion or more Indians in the subcontinent there, Hinduism, believed in this doctrine. In other countries, another probably billion Buddhists believe in this doctrine in a slightly different form. And certainly the Greek philosophers, like Plato in particular, believed that we have lived before, and much of his theory of his whole epistemology is derived based kind of on that assumption. Jesus probably believed in it, although we have no direct discussion of it in the Bible. The only place where we can get a, an explication of this theory is in Indian philosophy. That's the beauty of the Vedanta philosophy, although these doctrines appear in some forms in all religions of the world, are suggested in, and I implied in many different religions of the world. It's only in the Vedanta philosophy where they're given a complete, explicit discussion and explanation. So similarly in the Bible, we look in the Bible and we can see that there are a lot of hints that maybe that was the belief system. It wasn't discussed at all. Well, it was discussed by the later Gnostic traditions, but maybe it wasn't even mentioned in the Bible because a lot of people just took it for granted. It wasn't something that needed to be debated or talked about at all. And in fact, the early Christian church recognized that this was an accepted doctrine. And it wasn't until the Council of Constantinople in 325, when all these Christian fathers and bishops met, and they decided that that doctrine was uh, not consistent with other teachings of Christian theology. And so it was declared to be a heresy. So from then on, it was not incorporated in Christian beliefs. St. Francis believed in it. And well, today, a lot of surveys have been done, asked American mainstream uh, people whether they believe in reincarnation. Of course, now maybe things have changed the last 30, 30 or so years, younger generation exposed to the wisdom of the East um, a little different, but uh, only a small percentage of the American public, maybe maybe 20, 15, 20 percent, believe or are willing to entertain the possibility of this doctrine of reincarnation, and rather they are kind of locked in theologically to the one life theory. One life theory. Well. That's unfortunate for several reasons. As long as we adhere to the one life theory, that is the doctrine that says that man only lives once. You're born, you live your life, and then you die, never to be born again. As long as we entertain that idea, it raises a lot of conceptual difficulties, philosophical difficulties. And that is, well, for one thing, we have a lot of trouble 
virtually impossible to explain the problem of justice, the fundamental problem discussed by philosophers since the time of Plato, the problem of injustice in the world. You see, each one of us, we have a natural moral intuition that life should be just, things should be fair, people should get what they deserve. That's kind of part of our natural moral intuition. And we live in a cause. This is not a chaos. This is a cosmos. There are laws that govern all physical things. Certainly there are laws which govern our own mind. There are laws of mind. It makes sense that there should be great moral laws also, which govern our moral action. And yet, as we look around us, we certainly we can see that there are many examples of injustice in the world. And that uh, oftentimes criminals seem to get away with murder. And that very good people, even saints, often go unrewarded. And all this offends our sense of justice. We can't reconcile all of these, the injustice in the world around us, with our intuition of the way that things should be. Another difficulty that certainly we will have if we're committed to the one life theory is the problem of meaning in life. That is, human beings are by nature committed or condemned, as the existentialists say, condemned to meaning. We can't get away from the thought of our quest for, for some larger meaning and significance and importance in our life. We, we want to know what is the meaning of our life. And as long as we believe in the one life theory, it would be very difficult for us to explain the meaning of our life because meaning is context dependent. Say, for example, that you were to pick up a a novel, and you were to open the novel in the middle and read a chapter, you would be kind of baffled as to who these people are, why they're doing what they're doing, what is their purpose, uh, what is their past history. And that's because you don't have the context. You need to read the whole novel in order to understand that single chapter. And similarly, it is with our, our life. One life theory does not give us a large enough context to determine the meaning and the trajectory of our life. But as soon as we accept or are willing to entertain the possibility of this theory of reincarnation and the great law of karma, the whole picture changes. Maybe some of you have seen in uh, big murals in San Diego on the wall. You can see as you're walking maybe through Balboa Park or in, in uh, Old Town, San Diego, there are murals by a, a Mexican muralist, Diego Rivera. 
And as you're walking along, for example, you're walking along the street by the, a wall or one of these famous murals, and you turn your head and you just look there at the, at the picture. You may see a red spot and an arm and a leg. You can't, you can't, you don't even know what you're seeing there. It just looks like graffiti or something. But if you cross the street, you get back, you get perspective, then the whole mural appears, the whole story, and what you saw, now it all falls in place. And everything begins to make sense. So it's that perspective, it's that larger panorama that is suggested by this doctrine of reincarnation. Is there any proof of reincarnation? Uh, by proof, do we mean, do we have any convincing evidence that, in fact, this doctrine is true? Well, usually it's the first objection to this theory. It's objected to on the argument that we can't remember our, our past lives. And, of course, that's true. It's true that in our surface brain, we can't remember, of course, we can't remember what we did yesterday either. Can't remember the day before last week, forget about it. That's natural because as we go through life, whatever we experience, it's fresh in our minds, short-term memory, but by the next few hours later, or the next day, it's buried under many sense impressions and spirits as we have, have laid down layer upon layer. But the fact is that we know that uh, we can train our minds, we can focus our attention, we can do introspection, we can, with an effort, recall what we did a few hours ago, yesterday, the day before. We can, you have to make an effort. Sometimes it comes more naturally. You remember there was a series of books, I don't think it's in four volumes now, by the French author Marcel Proust, entitled Remembrance, the English translation, Remembrance of Things Past. He began that writing one day as he went into a bistro. He's got ordered a coffee. He um, bought a small little cookie, Madeline cookie. Maybe you've seen it. They still buy them. You can buy those. He bought that cookie, and he ate that cookie. And the cookie, the t taste of that, reminded him of a, of a childhood memories, came flooding up into his mind. When he'd been taken and he had that, he'd eaten those cookies. And one thing led to, he sat, that's interesting. And one thing led to the next. That, the memory of the child, that experience triggered another one, was linked to another. And like that, he began to recall and to remember things that he'd done in the past, people, names. And so he began this adventure, you know, exploring his uh, past life and recalling past incidents. Well, they say that yogis, we can't recall previous lives, but they say that yogis can. And you read in the Bhagavad Gita, Sri Krishna speaking to Arjuna, he explicitly says, you, you don't remember your previous life, but I remember them all. And certainly in the accounts of the Gautama, the Buddha, Buddha, there's collections of stories. They're called the Jataka tales. Stories that Buddha told about his previous incarnations. 500 stories about how he has uh, 
his incarnations in previous lives. Sometimes we have a kind of a feeling, if you walk into a room maybe, or you meet a particular person, visit a faraway place, you may have a kind of a momentary feeling that you've seen this place before, you've, you've done this before. We call it deja vu. And this experience was explained, common experience among people everywhere, even in ancient times, and it was discussed in some detail by the Greek philosopher Plato. He recognized that people everywhere understand and have kind of had this kind of a, of a strange experience. And he argued that such occurrences are real memories. They're real memories of things which we have done in the past, and that these experiences prove that we have lived in another life before this life. So that's the argument of the Greek philosopher Plato. Certainly we know that well, we have some other evidence of adults who may be in a situation of deep clinical hypnosis, have been regressed back along the timeline until they begin to recall impressions of what could be identified as a previous life. And here we have sometimes some very dramatic testimony of people who, in a state of unconscious deep hypnosis, they're speaking, they're answering questions, and they go through a whole personality change. Their facial expressions, their body language, their voice print changes. When they're asked to sign their name, the whole graphology of the signature has changed. And oftentimes they begin to, well, I say oftentimes, I mean, this is, these are rare, okay, but they're not so rare. There's a word for it, xenoglossy, where they begin to speak in other languages, languages that they've never been exposed to before. Kind of a baffling phenomenon. But in our context this morning, uh, give some, maybe some evidence for previous lives. We get more evidence from work that was done uh, with children. There was a doctor. He's passed away now, but uh, his doctor, Ian Stevenson, the University of Virginia School of Psychiatry, he did a lot to make this studies and research in reincarnation respectable in academic circles. Stevenson did a lot of work with children. And the fact is, is that sometimes children have fragmentary memories of what we would call a previous life. And in a typical case, a child would begin to narrate details, that is to mention names and places that mystified the parents. And the parents, if they heard about the work of Stevenson, they took the child and Stevenson would very closely question the child and collect notes of verifiable statements. And then he would go to those places and uh, seek out those people. And uh, he accumulated an impressive mass of evidence for 
reincarnation. You remember the famous poem by William Wordsworth, Ode to Immortality. It's an interesting poem where he, Wordsworth, when he was, when he was a child, he recalled his previous life, or at least he had strong feelings. It's only later on in life he wrote this beautiful poem where he's kind of longing for those days when he would walk around with that bright, shining memory of himself as a young soul born on the earth. So maybe the strongest argument, this is just giving you some, do we have any evidence? Do we have any convincing uh, arguments for this doctrine? Maybe the strongest argument is that it's an elegant theory. That is, it's a theory that's simple and that has great explanatory power. It explains a lot of anomalies in the life. Things that uh, otherwise, without this theory, we, we really cannot explain at all. For example, if we study in the lives, psychologists study the lives of identical twins, twins who have been, uh, when they're born, have virtually, they're like clones, they have maybe virtually identical hereditary DNA patterns. And they're very alike in nature and in nurture. That means they're raised together in the same family, same circumstances, up till later on in life. And you would think that the identical twins would often be, would be virtually the same in their personality and their behavior and the future trajectory of their life. Not at all. For the most part, they become, they're radically, they're obviously radically different people. And something uh, must be more than nature and nurture. There must be something more or other factor that enters into it, explains this radical difference. It's difficult sometimes for psychologists to explain uh, extraordinary talents and abilities that people have. How can we understand that people like Bach or Beethoven or something sit down at the age of four years old and there they are playing the piano? They have these amazing, innate, natural ability. And how did that come about? How did that happen? How do we explain the fact that we ourselves have predilections? We have things that we are, go through life and suddenly we walk in so we see something. Yeah, I'm interested in that. How is it we go in many different things? We say, I'm not interested in that. Suddenly we say, yeah, I feel like this is something I want to pursue. Why is that? Well, you remember Sri Ramakrishna tells about there was a young prince. He was heir to the throne. He'd grown up in a palace and lived a very sheltered life near the palace by the, by the river Ganges, the Maharaja, the queen, the prince. And he grew up with his other younger princes. And uh, they would play in the yards of the royal palace near the banks of the river Ganges. And one day the prince, with his playmates, went down to the river. And there he saw some flat rocks on the edge of the, of the river. And he exclaimed there to his playmates, he said, you know, I'm tired of all these games we've been playing. I haven't got a new game for us. Why don't we take our cloths, that is like a chuddar, and we'll dip our cloths into the water, 
and we're going to take them and we're going to hit them against these flat rocks. And all of the other princes look, what? What, what, kind of a game? what kind of a game? No, no, said the prince. This is a very interesting, very fun game. And so he convinced them all to do that. And they took their clothes and they slapped them against the rocks. Little did they know that up the river Ganges, many people were doing this. These were washermen. You know, in ancient India, that's the way they washed clothes. They didn't have a washing machine. So maybe they got some simple homemade soap. They put it in the cloth, and then they would beat the cloths on the rocks, and that would clean the cloths. Maybe we could explain why the prince, that sudden bright idea came into his mind. Why? Well, maybe he was a washerman in a previous life. Didn't come from such a royal lineage after all. Some food for thought. It's some kind of explanation. We want some meaning. We want some to explain. And this doctrine helps us to explain some of these things which otherwise would be completely baffling. Why do people have certain compulsions, certain phobias? Certainly psychologists find it difficult to explain the whole etiology of something like a... There was a psychic medium who, he's, he's dead now, Edgar Cayce. And Edgar Cayce told the story, this was not about his practice, but it the story about a guy who was in his closet. He had this compulsion to collect heavy overcoats. He lived in Miami, Florida, and his whole closet was filled with these overcoats. And he'd go out, and he'd walking through a shopping mall, and he'd gravitate into a store there, and he'd search around, asking, where can I buy an overcoat? Well, he had to go to a lot of trouble to gradually accumulate whole closet where he realized, people, this is a problem. And he went into therapy, and they couldn't figure it out until one day he was kind of put into a hypnotic, regressive pattern. And he began to recall strange incident that he was becoming colder and colder. And then he kind of began to talk about how I'm freezing, I'm freezing, I'm going to, I feel like I'm going to die. In fact, as if he was in a previous life, and he was caught maybe up in the Alaskan wilderness, and he was freezing. And as he got colder and colder, he vowed that if I ever get out of this alive, I'm never going to be cold again. And uh, with that thought, he died. Well, but in fact, again, he was reborn. And, uh, well, it may seem far out, but at least it is an explanation. See, we want to explain. No one else can explain it. So here's a possible explanation. It's an explanation for a lot of things like in our own personal relationships, in social relationships. People talk about love at first sight. People talk about meeting your soulmate or about just the opposite. You meet another person, you've never seen them before, you have immediate feeling of antagonism for that person or attraction. Why is that? Nobody can explain it. Family dynamics, many strange family dynamics that are repeated over and over again. A lot of these things are helpfully explained by accepting this doctrine of reincarnation and the great law of karma. Let me tell you a few benefits. A few benefits of uh, incorporating this teaching into our whole system. As you know, this Vedanta philosophy is a system. 
System means is like your automobile engine. We can just take and discuss any one part of it separately, but all of the parts go together. This is not an eclectic religion where you kind of pick and choose whatever you feel like, something you like, something you don't like. No, you need all the parts, but all the parts kind of fit together, reinforce each other. Some benefits for this, if our, and that's our, our goal, is to consciously, all of us and everybody in the human beings have a philosophy of life. And our goal as spiritual aspirants is to become conscious of our philosophy, to process it, to correct it, and to, um, to construct the mansion of philosophy so that we can live our lives more intentionally and more efficiently. This is a doctrine that helps us to do so. It's a teaching which is intellectually satisfying. That is, it's kind of an elegant theory. It explains a lot of things. It stands to reason. The great law of karma that affects and impacts us every moment of every day. It helps us to understand why we are what we are, why situations appear. And so we get a lot of intellectual uh, satisfaction and clarity to explain and translate the, our experiences in life. There's another benefit. Another benefit is, is that we get a lot of emotional consolation from this teaching. That is, this teaching of reincarnation gives us great hope. The teaching is that death is not the end of life. And that death is just kind of a rite of passage, just passing from one room to the next. And then a course of journey is just like a, a journey going from one door. We open one door, we pass through, that door closes and we continue on, going onward and upward. Everything that we've done in the past influences what we are and what we choose in the present. And however much we have failed in the past, if we look back on our life, we think I'm not, haven't achieved my goals, I haven't achieved self-actualization or self-realization. Yeah, but the story is not over. That's not the end of the story. The story will go on. Therefore, this doctrine is one which gives us great optimism. It gives us reason for a positive, optimistic outlook on life. Another benefit, this is a doctrine which is morally challenging. That is, it reminds us and confirms our natural moral intuition that there is a great law of justice that works in the cosmos. And that whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. It reminds us that kind of a sobering reminder to ourselves that everything that we do, that is to say that we will be punished for our sins. It reminds us of that, but it also reminds us and gives us hope that all of the things, the positive things that we've done, all the good work that we've done in our lives, also we will be rewarded for that in the future. That is, not only will our character change and will we become better or worse in that regard, but our experiences in the world around us will change. It offers us a challenge, of course, and that is to take control of our lives, 
That's the fundamental teaching, the great law of karma, that you are the master of your fate and the captain of your soul. And in life after life, you steer your direction in order to achieve your goal. Finally, we can say the greatest benefit of this doctrine is that it is spiritually uplifting. That is, this doctrine reminds us of the fundamental teaching of the wisdom of the East, and that is that you are a divine, immortal soul. The soul does not die when the body dies. And in the words of the old, I always like to quote the words of the old Christian hymn, John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave, but his soul goes marching on. Om Dyo Oshanti Antariksha Amshanti Prithivi Ishanti Aposhanti Oshadaya Shanti Vanaspataya Shanti Vishwe Deva Shanti Brahma Shanti Sarava Shanti Shantireva Shanti, Same Shantirehi, Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Om, peace is in heaven, peace is on the earth, peace is in the sky and in the waters. The herbs and plants and trees are full of peace. The gods are peaceful. This eternal peace. Enter our souls and beings, Om. Peace, peace, peace be unto us all. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.